They say it is the most wonderful time of the year. And by that, they mean it is bowl season. And so I'm going to start off with a simple question. Jeff, what is your favorite non-New Year Six or non-BCS bowl? So this is your pre-New Year's Day bowl games. So I'm going to be a little bit biased because this is also the one bowl game I've been to in person. But the Music City Bowl has a lot going for it. It is drivable for most of the fans of the two conferences that are involved, the SEC and the Big Ten. Nashville has a ton of hotels, so your logistics of getting a room aren't too difficult that time of year. Um, And it's not like it's getting a ton, a ton of people in like Orlando is this time of year. Um, Nashville has a ton of great restaurants. We love live music, which I, I really like going to a lot of live music. It's got a lot of live music of a variety of genres, not just uh, the country it's most known for. Um, and as mentioned, it's the one bowl game I've been to in person, and that 2021 uh, Purdue-Tennessee matchup was one for the ages. It was a great game. I believe we watched that game together. I, I was there, but there I was probably year. on the Discord but I was watching while it was going on. You... You were indeed, because I was watching it and I was I was typing through it the whole time. Uh, it was a great game. I know this game because in while I was undergrad, I remember Kentucky went in back to back years and beat Clemson and Florida State in back to back years, and then Clemson went again and played Kentucky in two thousand nine. So there was a year they didn't go, but the next time they both went to this game, they played each other, and uh, Clemson won that game in two thousand nine. Um, so it was drivable for three conferences because it's drivable for the, for a lot of, if not most of the ACC as well, setting aside maybe Boston College, Miami and Florida yeah. State. And I feel like also you typically have at least one of the teams. This is they're kind of on an upswing before a really big season. So 20 in 2021, both Purdue and Tennessee were, I think, eaten four going into the game and both of them. Then followed up with really big year. Purdue winning the Big Ten West in 2022. Uh, Tennessee beating Alabama. Um, not quite winning the SEC East, but still having one of their best years in quite some time. So it is a pretty interesting game on in that sense as well. A lot of teams have used it to set up for a big year after. Yeah, it does seem to be the case. I mean, Auburn won in 2018 and then immediately followed that up with a nine win season. Uh, in 2017, you had Northwestern. They had a 10 win season. And then immediately afterwards, they had a nine win season. This is the 2018 season. So I, you're right. This is two teams in what are ostensibly good conferences playing a real good bowl game and then maybe following it up with a good season. Uh, so, yeah, I. That's a good pick. And like you said, I think drivable distances are good for everybody. So Nashville, keep doing a great job. Even though they're playing, you know, in the Titan Stadium, which a lot of people don't like. It's fine. So <laughs> I I'll say honestly, it's fine. Yeah, most it, stadiums it's fine. That's are fine. And it's like a good game is gonna make up for the stadium itself. Mm. most i say most stadiums like as long as you've got like plumbing working right like there, there's some bare minimum things but once you get above the bare minimum things like the game itself 
the fans that you're around, that's really what makes it more than the stadium itself. I hear this, and I think you're absolutely right. I have been in some very small stadiums with very few amenities. And so I think because you and I have a different perspective on what that bare minimum, what that bar to clear is, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I'll say that <laughs> there are places below that bar. <laughs> go ahead. Um, all right. Like, there I, I go to there soccer are. games regularly at IUPUI Stadium, and that's below that bar. Pooey uh, pooey. Because. There is a, you need to make sure, you know, you've got sufficient, you know, bathroom facilities um, without them being overwhelmed timing wise. Uh, there are no permanent concession stands there. So like there is, there is a certain low bar um, that like you can define, but at the same time, it's Titan Stadium is above that bar. <laughs> like... Any most NFL stadiums are going to be above that bar. Completely, um, FedEx Field is, not FedEx is Field. the exception because the plumbing doesn't work and the railings are not really railings. Like, it, like that is it sure don't. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I get it. I hear you. I spent many of my childhood years going driving up to Giant Stadium to watch football games from the top of the stadium. And I, and I want to be clear. I don't mean this as like a euphemism or an exaggeration. We were seven seats, seven rows from the very top of Giant Stadium. And when you see on the field, when it whips, the wind whips, the wind would go in a circle around the stadium. It was bitterly cold. And I don't miss <laughs> that aspect of Giant Stadium. Um. Didn't I want to check? Did Ui Pui change their name, or did I? Did I hallucinate? I believe that's that? going to take effect next academic year. Um, the IU portion of um, so IUPUI started as a joint venture between Indiana University and Purdue University, a joint campus um, in downtown Indianapolis. It will be splitting. I think it's effective this upcoming school year. Um into IU Indianapolis and Purdue Indianapolis, and they'll be separate institutions. Um, I think there are the athletics will stay within the IU portion. Um, quite a bit of, I think other infrastructure still is within the IU portion. There is some still negotiating back and forth between Purdue and IU on, on some of that infrastructure um, on who's going to get what. Um, but, yeah, so sports team wise, uh, it will stop being IUPY and just be IU Indianapolis, which is not nearly as fun. Agreed. Um, so that's excellent. I I have the Sun Bowl because I feel deeply and strongly that when we talk about how things become the way they are. It's never usually product of the actions they take in the effort they're maintaining. So yes, the Rose Bowl is the Rose Bowl and all of the things around the Rose Bowl, the parade, all the mystique, uh, the stadium, all of those things make it interesting. 
But the thing that makes it the Rose Bowl TM is the media and all of the teams that are allowed to play in it. Which, great. I feel that if the Big Ten and the formerly known Pac-10 and Pac-12 going away want to have some sort of connection to the bowl game that they share and they make it important, that's wonderful. But I also think that for a lot of other fans who would have never had that opportunity, I can understand their point. Well, why would this be important? And the Sun Bowl is another one of these bowl games that has been around. It's older than every other bowl game, save the aforementioned Rose Bowl, and has meant a lot to a lot of fans over the years. Now, it didn't get to become a BCS Bowl. It's not a New Year's Six Bowl. It doesn't get any of the primetime, no pageantry, but they love it where they are. And I feel strongly that something like that, whenever I get a chance to watch it, which I plan to do this year, that's the type of thing that people should really, if they believe in a sport, sit down and watch. Uh, that's a personal, that's just my personal aside on it. I, I think it's a great game. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of good games. Yeah, and as much as sports writers love to wax poetically about, you know, the sunset at the Rose Bowl, the Sun Bowl also is in a beautiful natural surrounding out in El Paso. And I think one of the probably detriments of of it that kind of prevented its rise to the level is just El Paso is very isolated as a as a city. It's very it's kind of hard to get to. But it is yeah. beautiful as a setting. Um and it is. I think a lot of not necessarily well intended writing has also been about El Paso is a city. Um, it's a place I've never been, but would love to just because of where it is in terms of natural beauty, as well as it is a very unique place in the U.S. In it is as connected across the border as it is to other parts of the U.S. And that creates a lot of really interesting cultural exchange. Um, there is a couple different you know, U.S. men's national team players who grew up there, and, and that's part of their story is, is that family cultural connection on both sides of the border. Um, and right. Yeah, it's a very, very unique place. I would also like to point out when we talk about the history of the game on this sport, prior to this thing known as the college football playoff with its four teams, soon to be 12 teams, before the Bull Championship Series, the BCS, before even this thing called the Bull Alliance, we had this thing called the Bull Coalition. It only lasted three years. But in it was the Sun Bull. And in that that year, we had a lot of high-ranking teams go and play football. And so I, it's always meant a lot to me, and I try to watch it every year. Um, some honorable mentions I had. I, I miss it because they don't play it anymore, but I used to watch it every year. The Ponsetti Bowl, uh, which played in San Diego. Uh, it used to be an old military bowl uh, that they would have bases would get together and play back in the 50s, and then they brought it back in the mid to, the mid-aughts. Uh, and then it was a big-time game. TCU won it three times. Um, but it was a big time game and it was a fun game because they would have these Ponsettias that were all over town and they were all over the stadium. 
and so that was always lovely. And then the <laughs> Cheez-It Bowl, because I love Cheez-Its. Che- I do. I really do love Cheez-Its. <laughs> Cheez-Its are... Listen. There's, there are very few snacks that I reach for when I'm trying to feed my mascot, and Cheez-Its is one of them. Um, anything else, Jeff? Any, any final, any cool, uh, any cool bowls you want to point out before we get into the, get out of the cold open? I'll say, there are ones that are like, I have weird nostalgia because very often they're like the back-end Big Ten ones. So for a very long time, the, the various names of the one in Detroit is always pretty interesting. Um, the yeah. Motor City, the, the Motor City Bowl, yeah, uh, I think it was sponsored by Little Caesars. It was a pizza Pizza Bowl for a bit. Um, so remember that relatively fondly. Outback Bowl, remember pretty fondly. That's normally just a you're in the middle of the Big Ten. Here you go. Um, but I think also a lot of the smaller ones where you can tell, like this is a team that won the MAC that ends up there is is really special and very often the ones that end up being like this is a team that won or was second place in the MAC and they're playing like a Big Ten or SEC team that had a disappointing season that is always a really interesting matchup um, because very often you've got a really really excited group of five team and a not as excited P5 team and you could end up with what can be for them like one of the biggest wins of their program be like Oh, we beat, you know, those people that look down on us as being lesser. Oh, we beat you. Now, I think there was a year, number of years ago, where UCF went like 10 and 2 and they played a 6 and 6 Georgia and then beat them in a bowl game. And, you know, that's very cool. You would think people would think that's cool, but there's a lot of <laughs> disingenuous arguments being made about bowl season that I don't personally like. Um, my personal favorite is when you'll hear people say they don't want to be there if they just don't. But then they'll point to the outcomes of these bowl games when it's beneficial and say, Conference X won four out of four out of five. They must be the best conference ever. I well, which is it? Do they care? Do they not care? Does this matter? Does this not matter? It's it's very silly. And much as as much of college, and in the end, like in the grand scheme of things, does this matter? I mean, not not that much. But you know what? Have fun with it. Like, no, hanging out with family and watching football is a good time. And you're spending a lot of time with family over over the holidays. Like having someone, you know, having something on that you could all like watch and pay some attention to for the people that want that. And you know, it it's a fun thing. You have a nice centerpiece of conversation. Because you're going to be around people for a lot of time and you run right. out of stuff to talk to. Having more fodder for conversation that can't necessarily get that nasty is exactly what you want during the holidays. Agreed. So what I'm hearing is more bowl games not owned by ESPN. <laughs> Maybe we'll sponsor a bowl. Dukes can do it. We can too. And that will be our cold open.
And welcome, welcome, welcome to the second Bowl Week recap edition of Feed Your Mascot. My name is Blue, and I'm joined by the globe hot, globe trotting Jeff uh, in Parts <laughs> Unknown, recording from Parts Unknown this week. Jeff, how are you? I see you've got an 11, Indiana 11 hat on this week. How are you and what are you? I am good. I'm confused by how it's possible to be warm during Christmas time. But that's what happens when your in-laws moved somewhere that is warm. <laughs> so uh, during Christmas time, during a lot of the year. But yeah, we were down here as well last year for New Year's Day. And we literally went to the beach and we're in like shorts and a bathing suit. And I had to borrow a bathing suit for my father-in-law because I didn't pack one because I'm like, it's Christmas. Why would I need it's a December. bathing suit? <laughs> no, I completely understand. Uh, it is, I'm checking the weather right now, live on the air. And it is 47 degrees and drizzling right now where I'm at. So I hope I didn't just dox myself, but it's not, it's not nice weather out uh, in the part of Virginia that I live in. Um, but no, you're absolutely right. I have yet to experience a warm on purpose Christmas. I've had a warmer than usual Christmas, but I've not gone to a place where it is warm for Christmas. And I'd like to try that just once. So I have to go to Australia one year. That's going to be it. Um, This week, we've got two bowl games that we watched. I, I watched part of one before it got in a hand. I think you watched more of the other one before it got out of hand. Um, and so we're talking about the Gasparilla Bowl, which was, oh boy, hearing reports of bees. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, you'll have to tell me about that. Uh, they played the University of Central Florida Golden Knights, and man, the Big 12 didn't do well in this one. And then uh, we had an old Big East. I don't know why two Big East teams were playing in a bowl game together. Um, but the University of Southern Florida played, or excuse me, the University, University of South Florida uh, in Tampa played Syracuse University. I, again, two Big East teams. And that game was a shutout. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to uh, also get to that. And then I have been following this Florida State thing. And I'm glad you glad you brought it up because I, <sighs> oh boy, I guess we're going to have to talk about the Noles. I have, I um, have feelings. Jeff, I'm going to let you roll the dice here. Which one... It, I I have thoughts about public institutions mortgaging themselves to get out of deals with private corporations. Jeff, I want to ask you, which game do you want to start with here? Uh, you want to do Gasparilla or should we talk about this so Big East I think contest? the Big East happened first, so we can go in chronological order. I'm fine with that. So when I was uh, in an undergrad... I grew up uh, in Piscataway, New Jersey, and I rooted for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights and still continue to very, 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 very belatedly. Please, Scarlet Knights, make me happy and win your side of the conference one day. Um, But I watched both of these teams go and lose in Piscataway, New Jersey, multiple times. And one of those teams was ranked number two in the country (laughs) once. Uh, So their dreams died in Piscataway. So seeing them now in separate conferences, one in the American, one in the uh, ACC, the Atlantic Coastal, they played in a bowl game together this year, and South Florida just went in and laid the wood to the orange. I, Jeff, I, man, you got this. It's so stupid, but woo! And uh, very tell me early about in that. the game, what kind of set the game in the favor of uh, the South Florida Bulls 
was turnovers. And in particular, a uh, couple of fumbles that ended up being scooping scores that they got um, from the Orange. And that set a tone for just Syracuse being shut down the entire game. Um, and in particular, shut down on the line, both in running the ball and passing the ball. So uh, USF had a havoc rate of 19%, that's 91st percentile, and a run stuff rate of 38%, that's 7th percentile. Very much the the Bulls lived in the backfield of the Orange. They saw red and they, they went. Did, yeah. And the whole game. That created the chaos that set up um, four turnovers <laughs> for Syracuse. Um, and really was why Syracuse did basically nothing and USF ran all over them. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm. I'm as interested in anybody in the idea that we're coming out to do what we expect on offense, which for Syracuse, despite losing their head coach and a lot of their players to what appears to be the transfer portal, both before this season and during, you know, this particular run under the most recent administration of uh, coach Dino Babers, they were unable to do anything they wanted to normally do, which is spread you out, get the ball, spread the ball, get a guy in space and have him make a play. They couldn't do any of that. I mean, we were looking at the off, some of the offensive numbers here. We're talking they had minus 0.5 EPA per play. They had a success rate of 19%. It looks like they were 6 for 12 from one quarterback. Four for 11 from another. And the guy who went four for 11 threw two picks. Yeah. So half of his throws would have went to other people. Yeah. Just, and it was, I was like, early I, on, I'm like, okay, this is sloppy. It's fun. And then, yeah, it just kind of was, well, USF has this in hand. Syracuse can't do anything. And I'm tired. It's a weeknight. See ya. <laughs> What's really telling about this the Orange had, it looks like, five guys run the ball. They have one guy who ran 21 times for zero yards. I don't know if that's a statistical error. I'm not sure if ESPN's numbers are wrong. I'm looking at some other numbers. It looks like Syracuse had 39 rushes, which is 60% of their of their entire production and 15 of those, of those yeah. runs were stuffed. So 40% of their runs got stopped, got, excuse me, got stuffed. 64% were for less than two yards were stopped. I, I don't know what to make of this. They ran 39 times for 35 yards. So like, <laughs> this is to your point, like, the Bulls just decided we're not going to allow you to run the football. And then they were bad at passing it. And that that makes for a that makes for a bad day. Yeah. And then this thing about turnovers. I'm sorry. Would you mind reading this turnover thing for me, please? I, I don't quite understand so, what you mean here. All right. So it's four total turnovers, including uh two fumbles lost and two picks for Syracuse. Um, they 
had, I think, five total fumbles. Three of them were recovered. They just, like, couldn't hold on to the ball at all. They couldn't move the ball, and they couldn't come on, hold on to the it ball. It was very tough. much meant USF didn't have very far to go. I mean... I mean, they didn't have yeah. to go anywhere on the two scoop yeah. scores. They got points easy. I mean, it was a rough night for the Orange. Look, they're under new management. Uh, Fran Brown, uh, he's from Jersey, so that's a big plus for me. But in addition to that, he he was playing college football when I was an undergrad. So I'm excited to see what he does. I'm going to be supporting the Orange next year, seeing where they're at. And this is this is a bad way to end the season. This is a I, – I get it. They didn't want to be here, sure, but – you can't acquit yourself at this yeah, point. And in the I mean, game. Syracuse is not a bad football team. I have I watched them play earlier this year. They beat no. Purdue. They're they're capable of being a good football team. And I mean, throughout their history, they've been capable of putting together some really great teams, um, along with some not as great teams. So it's. It'll be interesting to see where they are going forward because I think this is there are still some potentially good pieces on that roster as well as I think you can put together, recruit, develop, and scheme something really good even you know at Syracuse, which I think people act like is a little bit on the moon and it's a little bit far from a lot, but at the same time, the history of Syracuse well. Hold the on. History's, oh. <laughs> here, the history of Syracuse football is they've figured out how to convince guys to go to Syracuse, and they've done really, really well. Like, they've convinced all-time athletes to go to Syracuse. I heard that uh, my fellow Howard man, my fellow Howard man, Gus Johnson called him Maserati Marv, uh, Marvin Harrison Jr.'s dad went to Syracuse University. So, I... Look, they have put together great teams. I mean, even I know people give Dino a hard time. Yeah. Coach Babers won 10 games at Syracuse. A very, a very hard thing to do. Like, let's give him credit. He won 10 games at Syracuse and he got paid for it. So good, you know, I, he got the credit. He got paid for it. But um, you're right. It is something to think about, something to consider that they have found ways to convince people to go up there and play football and I'm always begging for more Northeastern teams. And if I want to be committed to that, I need Syracuse, Buffalo, Rutgers, BC, all of them to be good. Ideally, all at the same time. Yeah, I'll say particular so in the I, in the ACC, tough luck on that one. could get going BC, Pitt, Syracuse to fight it out at the top of the ACC. That would be a really interesting moment for Northeastern football. It would be great. And then probably one of the Southern powers of ACC football would try to leave the conference. Who knows? Um, That's called (laughs) foreshadowing folks. Um, Conspicuously not on my list of teams that are in the Northeast, any of the Ivy league and UConn. So it's conspicuous if they want to be mad about it. They'll hit us up on socials. Sorry, um, Guapo. Jeff, I'll give you the last word on this. Yeah, <laughs> Guapo is going to be so mad. Love you, Guapo. I love you and the fact that you've won a national championship in basketball with this team in UConn. Be mad at me. Um, 
I'll give you the last word on this because we both turned it off early and it got uglier after <sighs> we, we stopped watching. Yeah, I'll say it's it's also one of the weird ones where it's in the week before Christmas and so fan travel isn't always ideal, but for the folks that were able to get out there, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Same. And it kicked off at 8 p.m. Eastern. So it was yeah. not pretty <laughs> knowing knowing some of the weather way it's been. Uh, moving right along to some place where the weather should have been much better. Uh, the Gasparilla Bowl was played this week. And and Jeff, I'm I'm hearing reports of bees. What did you think about was this game? Right at the beginning, it looked like US or UCF would was way out ahead. And I mean, basically for the first quarter, um, they were leading and they looked to be on their way to a route. And it looked like they were running the ball really successfully and just keeping Georgia Tech from doing that. And then it flopped the other way and never went back. Um, and Georgia Tech was running the, running the ball very successfully. In particular, it looked like they were mixing in quite a bit of option stuff, which is interesting given uh, some of the coaching changes that they made over time because of, the option but they i mean they were running the ball very successfully uh 0.23 epa per rush that's 83rd percentile um that put them on pace for 0.14 epa per play uh so the first percentile and a 50 percent success rate which is 88th percentile so georgia tech had a really excellent day running the ball and that very much put them in the driver's seat once they were able to get stuff going um, and USF just kind of couldn't keep it together after um, that early portion of the game. Yeah. So I'm looking at the numbers on this. I'm coming in a bit cold. I didn't get a chance to watch this particular game, but from what I can tell, it looks like Georgia Tech had a total EPA of 11.6. So they found those extra points they really needed to win this game. And they won this game by three scores. Um, oh, two, excuse me, two scores. They, they win this game by 13. So they win this game by two scores. What I'm seeing here, though, is Georgia Tech completely gave up on the pass at some point in the game and just decided you can't stop the run and we're going to force you to account for that. And we're also seeing something else we've seen from Central Florida all season where they get out hot. I mean, they come in hot and then over the course of a game, slowly bleed away. And I don't quite know what the answer is because I think it's a combination of things. The most important play of the game was when Georgia Tech tied it up. Go figure. Um, which was on a long pass, by the way. But it speaks to me of a depth issue on Central Florida. So they either don't have the depth second and third level down the depth chart compared to some of the teams they're playing. Or, and this is something that stuck out to me listening to some of the other podcasts, Georgia Tech figured out use, uh, the University of Central Florida's signs during the game. And I'm not joking. Like I'm not saying this in a. I'm not saying this in a Connor Stallings. They're videotaping him. It's like if you look at the, the the win percentage, it's Golden Knights all the way. And then, boom! At play number ninety one, it looks like all of a sudden it's not the Knights yeah. anymore. 
And like, I don't have an answer other than it looks like Georgia Tech figured out how to stop these guys. And in a, they did so in a really belligerent yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly given this is a trend across the whole season and knowing, I think that is one of the challenges of coming up from G5 to PLO, just having the depth to sustain a whole game, particularly when you talk about on the lines, um, because there are a limited quantity of people with the ability to play on offensive and defensive line at a P5 level. And it takes time to get those guys. It takes time to, if you need to develop guys to that level, do that. And your first year in a new conference you're going to have a significant portion of your roster that were recruited when you had some recruiting disadvantages on getting a roster full of that talented and capable folks. So it's not that surprising on the depth level. Um, I think we've seen that basically throughout all of the teams that came up from the American into the Big 12 is they've all kind of struggled a little bit. And I think we'll see a lot of them over time figure that out, particularly as you can recruit a whole roster saying, hey, we are a P5 team. And Houston and UCF, we've seen them be able to, in the past, get one or two really talented guys and and convince them to come play there versus one of the other Big 12 schools. I think it's... Okay, how do you get it from being just one or two on the roster to five, six, seven, eight, nine you know, of of people that would be capable of starting right. Texas? Yeah, or at least competing with them, right? Um, I want to point out a couple of stats here. The stop rate, Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech's defense at a fifty-two percent stop rate. So whatever it is that 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 the Golden Knights were doing, it wasn't successful. I want to also point out opportunity runs. So this is any run that was longer than four yards. 57% for Georgia Tech. 30 of their runs were longer than four yards. 30 of them. And they ran the ball as much as they did. They ran the ball 50 times. And 30 of those went for longer than four yards. I mean, I that speaks to... It speaks to, again, we're going to lean on you, and they did it successfully. One other thing I want to point out, no sacks from Central Florida. So not only could they not, again, this is a product of Georgia Tech giving up on the pass, but when they were passing, they didn't give up any sacks, and Georgia Tech got three of them. So I... It wasn't an all-around thrashing, but at some point you can see where that switch flips and and the Golden Knights are going to have to shore up that team in certain places if they want to really compete against, quote-unquote, power Yeah, and I think particularly teams. if with that you know, four-yard threshold, that's basically where you've got your linemen getting you to blocking linebackers you can get to the second level. Yes. That's fundamentally your and a great example of that on the lines, and I think that's something that maybe UCF can change over the time. But right now, 
Georgia Tech just can do more on the offensive line, which is something that it took a number of years after moving from the option to see Georgia Tech really do. So that's, I think, also, you know, if you're coming at from from Georgia Tech perspective, that's something to also look forward um, facing of what can happen next season because you're really starting to get your offensive line where you need to be to have sustainable seasons. I mean, the offensive line yards in this game, 83. That's These are plays where they're asking the offensive line to do their job. The offensive line for Georgia Tech did its job. Yeah. That's all you could. That's all you, they did what they were supposed to. I I love it. I love to see it. Uh, great job, Bees. Uh, have a great season next year. And uh, and I want to say a great send off to John Rice Pumley. Had a great career for Central Florida. I, I hope he gets healthy because he has been out here playing hurt. I respect it. And I hope that whatever he's doing next, if that's NFL, I know he's a baseball player as well, I believe. If it's whatever he's doing next, I hope he excels at it. And I hope he gets healthy. Even even if he's doing a desk job for the rest of his life, I hope he gets healthy in like. Same. No one wants to deal with that level of like knee pain in your 30s. So we do not wish that on anyone. It's not worth it. (laughs) Agreed. I. Oh, man. Yikes. So shout out to uh, John Rice Plumley, Great, great career. And uh, I still think a great player. Uh, I'll give it to you, Jeff, if you want it. Last word on this game on the Gasparilla. It was a good time. I know that they do a lot around uh, Gasparilla Festival in in Tampa. Looks like a fun time. Um, well, the pirate stuff. Um, you had some classic Florida weather as well. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a little bit of rain. Sounds happened, lovely. But yeah. Shout out to the Gasparilla Bowl. Another one in the books. So, Jeff, moving from the recaps, moving on from all the great things, uh, I see you put one thing in here from the Scooters Coffee Frisco Bowl. Walk me through this. So that game kicked off at 9 Eastern uh, between UTSA um, and Marshall. Uh, I watched a tiny bit of it before I was absolutely tired and fell asleep. Um, of course, this is a game sponsored by a coffee shop. Um, it's a chain throughout uh, quite a bit of the South. They're based out of Texas. And so, you know, if one was was saying, hey, maybe this is great advertisement starting a game at nine so that you have to go and get coffee to watch the rest of your game. You would think, but the closest Scooter's Coffee location to uh, where I am at my in-laws closes at eight Eastern. So it was closed before kickoff, so I couldn't go to it and get coffee to watch the rest of the game, which, uh, yeah, is is certainly a bit of irony there. A little bit. It seems like they open up at 530 every a.m. Not a plug for Scooter's Coffee, but uh, if you're going to advertise, you should be open during your game. At a minimum. So, Jeff, I'm going to move us forward here. There are currently a pair of dueling lawsuits between the uh, the Atlantic Coastal Conference and Florida State University, all 
specifically over the grant of rights, which is the actual agreement between the conferences and the universities when a team wants to leave the conference or when they join, when they sign such, where basically they give their TV rights over to the conference, which is kind of like the Mexican standoff. Hopefully that's not an inoffensive, that's it's an inoffensive way to describe this, but basically it is the sort of Damocles that keeps everyone happy and copacetic when they're working together inside a conference. Right now, it's a big number for Florida State because yes. they're upset. They want to leave. Jeff, how did you what is the number that you have here? And I apologize for reading your bullet about what's going on with the doing the conferences, but how much would it cost for Florida State to leave? And how did you come to I this conclusion for the money? Because it was stated by other reporting. So um but the number in a mixture of, of fees I and some revenue that would be required to be handed over. Um if if Florida State wanted to leave right now, just to pay to get out, would be $572 million in fees. Now, depending on the outcome of Florida State's lawsuit, that could be lower because essentially what they're trying to say is, hey, ACC, you didn't uphold your side of the contract by to look out for our interests, which is complicated because ACC's role is to look out for the interests of multiple institutions and not just Florida State. Um I would argue, I would argue to look out for the interests yes. of the ACC, of which Florida State is a constituent member. But I would still, to to, to the point, the conference is the most looking out for the conference. As we've seen, conferences aren't always their members and vice versa. <laughs> Shout <laughs> yeah. out, Pac-12. So, Carry on. So it's possible that that number could be lower or they could reach a settlement or it could go away entirely, depending on a bunch of legal stuff. Sure. I don't entirely understand. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hand it over to some of our other friends. That, yes. Yeah. Sam. We're going to call Sam. <laughs> um, Sam Eric, who's a, a uh, law professor at Boise State, who's a good friend of ours. Uh, you can look at his Twitter. Um, he's got some, some good commentary. and He actually understands this versus... To two people that are just going to assume that it's a spherical cow in a vacuum and move on. Um, <laughs> but it is an absurd amount of money if they were just to, to leave. And even if they could negotiate the down, it'd be probably a very large sum. Um, and for Florida State to get that money, they would potentially be, have to take on debt. They could sell off some future TV rights to another entity, which is something that um, FC Barcelona, if you're familiar with them in La Liga, has done because they are in weird financial situations and they also still want to sign players. Um, and so they've been selling off TV rights to get capital in the short term to sign players, which I don't think that's going to work out very well for them, but that's... Uh, they are a member-owned club that can... It's on the members to take these weird decisions. Um, they could raise tuition or fees onto students for this. They could do cuts throughout the university. Um, and, you know, within Florida State's athletic department, cuts could, you know, impact their women's soccer team that just won a national title and is very successful. Um, they have a lot of really interesting arts and humanities programs, including... Um, Many people joke that they have a clown college, which is true. They have a um, circus troupe, the Flying High Circus at Florida State, but it's an incredible program and a really unique program. Um, and we've seen other universities that have been in budget crunch cut things like arts and humanities. Uh, West Virginia, for example, in this 
past year. Um, and the other thing that would be a pretty damaging thing of a potentially place to get the money is reducing maintenance on facilities, which is ah, puts anyone in those facilities in danger. And we've seen other universities that have had funding issues have serious issues with lack of maintenance in dorms and that that being terrible living conditions for people in the dorms. I would also like to point out one of the things that could be cut is the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory, known as MagLab. Um, this is one of the most powerful magnets on planet Earth. It produces about 36 Tesla. Um, for context, if you were to take about 10 to 12 Tesla, you could levitate a frog. All right. Um, 36 Tesla is probably strong enough to stop your heart because it would cause the electric field that actually the current that runs through your heart that actually causes your heart to pump. Uh, that would probably stop and it would kill you if you're like inches away from it, breathing on the glass, it would stop your heart. Um, but the point I'm getting at is like, there are things that would be cut that would be deemed non-essential because we have to pay $500 million to get out of a deal for our football team. Be a real problem. I, if I was, you know, if I was maybe say the alumni of a school who uses bag lab to do a lot of work, uh, shout out Norfolk State University, um, I'd be mad if they cut the mag lab. So I, I don't want, want this to be lost that there's a deal already in place that Florida State has to honor and they are looking at breaking that deal and it's going to cost them, they're going to have to pay a king's ransom to get out. And that is not going to cost just the university. That may be at capabilities that service students in the in this university system. Uh, Jeff, take us to the why here, because you you use West Virginia as an example of like a university cutting services because of outside influence. Why would something like this? So one of the reasons why Florida State is uneasy is obviously the, the playoff snub and feeling that the ACC is in a conference that can help them in football and just the lost pride of that. I think they're, they're also within Florida State fans. They in some ways feel they're more similar to some of the schools in the SEC versus some of the schools in the ACC. And even in the statements that Florida State's made, um, they're part of their thinking that the ACC isn't representing their best interests is bringing in um, some of the new schools from the Pac-12 that are very unlike Florida State in Cal and Stanford, which are incredibly fine institutions, but are different in how they approach athletics, for example. Um, and I think one of the other big concerns on the athletic side is we only know this till about 2030 because that's when the Big Ten's current media deal runs out and then the SEC is relatively similar. But there's a gap of about 30 million between what a Big Ten team receives in revenue and what an ACC team reserves in revenue. And I think there's a concern on the football side of, well, we can't invest that into athletics. We'll fall behind. Now, I will say the math does not work out that your exit fee is going to make up for that. And I would say there's a real concern. We're at peak um, of what the media fee or media revenue is going to be for football at this point. You may never make it up. 
Um, and one interesting thing is both the SEC and Big Ten have stated publicly they're not interested in Florida State. So you're leaving to try and get more revenue that you may never get. So I have I have thoughts on this because the deal that they have now is a significant deal and it was a significant deal when they signed it. Yes. When they say, yes, like when they say we're going to make $30 million a year from now, from now, from 2023 until the end of our contract, that's $300 million over the course of the next decade because the contract goes through 2033, at least, right? 2030, excuse me. And I, I'm really, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it goes. The, the ACC deal. There's escalators in there yearly. Further, yeah. And they're, they're small escalators. Um, I think. Yeah, yeah. It actually goes longer than the Big Ten and SEC deals, which I think is also one of the concerns of the ACC. Probably viewing things like I'm viewing it of long-term stability of the revenue when we don't know what media is going to look like in the next decade is a good thing because yeah we could have a situation in five years where how people consume sports is very different and the level of interest for sports is very different in terms of what that looks like in public consumption of media and is there going to be the money to pay $70 million for football rights per year per school in a conference. Like, I think that's a legitimate concern um, that I think the ECC probably shares. And that's why they said, okay, we're going to go for this long-term deal as well as an unease about schools leaving, which had happened right before that long-term deal in the ACC. One of the things I want to point out is there's a there is a bubble here. You're absolutely right. The bubble has lasted longer than a lot of people would have suspected. But th- there is a growing bubble. And that bubble is going to burst for the vast majority of college football teams and conferences. Yes, the two at the top are going to most likely continue to stay far ahead of everybody else. But the max TV deal is not going to reach what any of these conferences are getting. It may not be half that. I, I can imagine if the Mac was getting 15 million per school per year, they would be ecstatic. But they're not. They're not getting that. The same is probably true of Conference USA and the Sun Belt. And so if the ACC believes they can get a better deal, I'm sure they'll try to negotiate that. But at the time that they negotiated the deal that they have, they got ostensibly the best deal that they could get for college football. And if Florida State leaves, the Big Ten has said, we are going to select a specific type of university. Now, they then kicked out Nebraska from the AAU club, so maybe they'll change their thinking on that. But Florida State joining one of these big conferences is not a given. Because we've seen Florida State football ebb and wane the last 20 years. Yeah. We've seen it the last 10 years. There are last championship. There are some rumors that within the SEC, a lot of the schools don't want another SEC school in Florida, particularly Florida doesn't. Um, But some of the others, because they don't want the additional competition in recruiting, because saying 
even if you're Georgia or one of the Mississippi schools saying to a recruit in Florida, hey, we can take you to the SEC as an advantage. So there's if the two that would be the big revenue jump have reservations, um, what are you really leaving for Florida State? Like the the ACC. It has one, some other very good football programs Two, it's making about the same revenue that the Big 12 would. And are you leaving the right. ACC for the Big 12 just because? Because you're. I don't know if the math works out for some of the other concerns for the reputation, the football reputational concerns. So it's. And it may just be a we're doing doing this to look like we're doing something after getting snubbed from the playoff. But one next year, the way the playoff works, you'll probably you would probably be in it under a system if you win the ACC. Now there's probably a concern of would you get picked as an at large, but also. Do you really want to leave a lot of your you know, rivalries and everything behind? Yeah, yeah, that doesn't matter. I They play their biggest rival at a conference every year, and I'll be candid with you. Yeah, they may hate Miami, but Miami's not leaving the ACC. Yeah. I mean, what it, Miami's had no success, no major success. I don't. I don't want Hurricane fans to be upset with me, but Miami of Florida, the Miami Hurricanes, has not been a national power since the early when they were 2000s. in the Big East. Yeah, I would say they've not I think replicated what they were when able they were in the, to Big do in the Big East in the ACC. Really, of the schools that left the Big East for the ACC, the only one that really came close to what they were. Well, the only one that the the most successful of them was Virginia Tech, and. Correct. Dave ebbed and flowed as well. Correct. Like by a wide margin. By a, Virginia, by a wide margin. The expectation was, oh, Miami will come in and they'll dominate and they'll, we'll have them play Florida State in the ACC championship game. And Virginia Tech and BC played in a Has ACC never championship game and FSU and, and Miami have not. Miami's so it's they played in one. Miami's Virginia played, Tech's in one. played has played in far more. Virginia Tech, you know, for a while was the dominant force in the conference. They've, so they've played in half as many yes. as Wake Forest. I again I if it's a money thing, even if you want to make this move, it has been reported Florida State doesn't have the capital to do so. And to your point, they'd have to sell off parts of the school to do it, but I have a real problem with a university, a public university, an institution mortgaging itself, giving itself away to private equity. That is absolutely Obsensibly not for pride, like it, for almost nothing else. Yes. Literally just for pride. Correct. I, I feel strongly and I, I have been kind of people have been disagreeing with me. If Florida State is this mad with the committee, and this mad with what happened to them. And, I, and I'm, I've told you, I don't like the committee. The committee shouldn't exist. If Florida State spit in the face of the committee and said, we're not going to play an Orange Bowl, we're not going to participate in the system, 
we are going to declare ourselves national champions because we went undefeated in the regular season. I would, ex- I personally would accept that. Yeah. I would say, well, yeah. Yeah. What? They, they, that, that's the protest they should be having. They shouldn't protest the ACC. They should be protesting the unelected, unmoderated, unaccountable junta that is the that is the playoff committee and should say to them, we're, we're not going to play your game. We just won't do it because, you know, what's not as much as 500 million, the penalty for not playing in the Orange Bowl. And the ACC should support them on that as a as a conference should say you snubbed not just Florida State, you snubbed our conference. So, you know what, we're not going to play. We're not going to play ball with you. That's what I would do. But they're going to whine and try to pay $500 million and still wind up not in the playoffs. Yeah. And I'll say it's an interesting week for this sort of thing because MLS attempted to and U.S. soccer said, no, you cannot do this um, in what is the oldest um, club soccer competition in the U.S., the U.S. Open Cup, pull out their first teams and replace them with with reserve teams. And that got a lot of pushback. Um, there were some court rulings in Europe uh, that would essentially allow a Super League to mo- move forward without UEFA's permission. And there was a proposal for that. So, like, internationally, we're also seeing a very weird week of, like, disruptions to traditions in the sport. And obviously, we've seen that for a number of years in college football um, with realignment. But it's just, like, kind of coming to a head of one week of like, are we as fans of teams of the support of, of these sports, how do we react to this? Because we saw the initial Super League proposal, fans quite literally go to the streets and protest in front of club offices to the point that like Chelsea had to say, we're sending out a club legend who's our PR guy at the moment. Uh, to tell you guys to chill for five minutes so that we can announce that we aren't going to do this, right? Um, And you had a lot of pushback from just about everyone in the soccer media in the U.S. regarding um, the Open Cup. And this balls a ton of fans, most supporters groups in MLS saying, no, this is a very, this is an important competition that we want to protect. You can't just do this. Um. And it's very interesting where I think a lot of people in college football have had some level of gallows humor to passiveness on a lot of realignment, particularly talking to people on Florida State, where it's almost all some level of gallows humor when the stakes for Florida State as a university are very high. And if they try and do this, what they could lose, as well as the consolidation for the rest of the sport being a potential problem and i think it is very interesting just those different responses and to some extent if you look at college football the boosters and fans of teams have like much more power than they think they have to say no to changes because quite honestly the boosters control a large portion of the money needed for this like if the boosters are against something it won't happen like we see that with coaches it doesn't happen it It is astounding to me that we're not, we don't see that in the same way with realignment. And I think a lot of, I ask a lot of fans and boosters of, if these things make you angry, you almost need to start either saying directly to uh, universities, okay, 
there's a price if you do this and the price is if you're a booster cool you don't have my money anymore or even if you're just a fan that buys tickets to games i'm not going to games anymore or watching what's like that's to some extent particularly on the big booster side i feel like there needs to be more thinking about the pushback uh, about pushing back if you value some of the tradition just saying well this is how it goes like i i want to push back on that just a little because even if we have this conversation about boosters the booster power is very limited they may be able to bully a coach they can't bully a president because athletics and academics are separate and the president oversees both. And so you can tell an AD as a booster, I give my money, my money goes to the, to the athletic side of things. I'm, I'm telling you how we're going to proceed. Very few people, no matter how much money they give, get to stand in front of a university president and tell them how, to, how things are going to go. Very few people, I'm not saying none, but very few. And those deals are not signed by ADs. They're signed by presidents or chancellors or whatever your top person at an institution is. Yeah. I was like, I, and some of it is just, even if you technically don't have the power, just having enough public pressure that usually people that become university presidents don't like pissing people off or looking like they're pissing people off. Well, they do. They do quite often. But to some degree, <laughs> yeah, most of those people have some level of shame of I'm doing something really, really unpopular and I can't sustain this. So sure. if you make it appear really, really unpopular. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's just it's just very and I think maybe all of us happening at once in multiple sports that I care about with teams, particularly when we talk the U.S. Open Cup, a team in the second division. This is a unique opportunity to play some of the bigger teams in MLS with the open cup and disrupting that is a massive disconnect in the sport. And it's a MLS honestly trying to take power in the sport. And what they typically do with that power is destroy the rest of the sports infrastructure in the U S and pretend it doesn't exist. So it's great. It, so it, but it's a thing of, okay, you shouldn't just accept this is happening. We should kind of, as as fans and as people in the sport, say, okay, what are even little bits we can do to signal this isn't okay? I would argue that you're wanting some sort of collective action regarding all of the fans of the various sport that we love, college football, coming together and making a decision on how they want to enjoy the product. And I agree with you completely, <laughs> and I have no idea what that looks like. So um, uh, welcome to the resistance, Jeff. I, uh, you, get a, you get a pin and you get a cockade, and then we, uh, we storm the streets looking for, <laughs> looking for the committee members themselves. I, you know, to answer one of your questions, do you understand the implications and the answer is no. And I would I'd say that because nobody does. I really, truly believe 
Mizzou and Texas A&M leaving the Big 12 was an un, had a series of unintended consequences. A series of unintended consequences that nobody predicted. Because I can assure you in 2012, a decade ago, no one would have imagined Texas was going to follow them. No. Nobody. I can assure you that. Because everyone thought Texas was going to the Pac-10. Oh, that was a fun, like, afternoon. That was the rumor. <laughs> two weeks. It was a two, fun two weeks. And here we are now with Texas and Oklahoma causing moves that kicked that kicked Oregon State and Wazoo out of the pack out of the uh, 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 the group the Power Five. That's what happened. The movements of Mizzou led to Wazoo being kicked out of the Power Five. That's where we're at. It's an interconnected world. It's an interconnected ecosystem that. I really do believe if you'd say to 20 teams or 30 teams, we're going to extract you from the rest of the sport. That's a, that's not how we should be thinking about things. They should not be saying we're going to just pull ourselves out because we don't like the rules yeah. that we agreed to and choose to maintain because they benefit us. Because all of these moves, every one of them leads to the top of the sport benefiting and the bottom of, of the sport suffering. Every one of them. That's how this has always worked. And I think if people would were to understand that aspect of things, we talk about it a lot differently. But I do think if they decide Purdue and Indiana are not worth it to keep in the Big Ten, they won't be in the Big Ten any further. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's how it's like, that is, I, I, and that, that I am is, not picking no, on the Boilermakers. I mean, there are... There are a group of schools in, in the Big Ten and probably a group of schools in the SEC and the ACC that are in a very precarious situation if that sort of split occurs. And yeah, I would admit Purdue and IU and yeah. Illinois are among them. And that is, I think, as even fans of those schools saying, okay, we, we don't want and FSU in the Big Ten, or to be honest, we probably should have said this, when Oregon and Washington happened, that just kind of happened really quick, or when UCLA and USC happened, though, the instability is going to be bad for half the conference. At, at yes. a minimum. And then also, and I'll tell you this question, this. okay, if you are Iowa, Wisconsin, like, Minnesota, what, what's next or because you, you are on the edge where it's like, yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure if Ohio State wanted to form a super league, we'd be we'd be the MAC, and that would absolutely stink. Uh, Wisconsin, you might be there. Your other option, congrats, you're now the IU of the super league. How does that make you feel? And functionally, if like for those schools, how would they use athletics to build community trust and? to keep people engaged, to donate across the school. That's important. Um, do you really want that jeopardized in the way that if you're now going 2-10 and in Super League does? Or Ohio State, are you ready for the fact your down years aren't 8-4? and four? They're 4-8? Four and eight? Like, it's a very complicated world that you're trying to set yourself up for. And I think no one actually wants it, even though... There are people that think they do. I, I'm going to say this. This is, this is going to be incredibly controversial. 
So forgive me, everybody. But uh, basketball doesn't move. <gasps> I don't. I live in Indiana, and I barely care. I know. About basketball. I'm sorry. It's fine. <laughs> I'm so sorry to all the people. If you who love, love it, basketball. it's awesome. But I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. Um, here's why I'm saying that. If Indiana this year, and I'm sorry, Jeff, cover your ears. If Indiana this year goes and wins March Madness. And a tectonic shift comes. And they go and they're starting to rearrange because of football. That basketball championship is not going to save Indiana. And I'm not conjecturing this. Because there's a small school in East Rutherford, East Rutherford, excuse me, uh, up in Connecticut. In stores, in stores, Connecticut. That got kicked out of their conference. And they won a championship. And they just won another championship. And they still can't get in a conference. In basketball. And I'm double checking. Do you know the last Big Ten team to win a national championship while in the Big in Ten? In basketball? I think it's in basketball, Wisconsin. And if it's not Wisconsin, it's Michigan State. Okay. It's Michigan State in 2000. In, t- in 2000? Maryland won in 2002. Tom Izzo won in 2000, okay. baby. I don't know what happened to time. I, better, I just assume a bunch of it, teams it that made future. Final Fours eventually <laughs> won. Because <laughs> I know Wisconsin and Michigan State have nope. made a bunch of Final nope. Fours. Okay. I'm going to read some names to you. In order, since 2000... Duke, Maryland, Syracuse, Connecticut, North Carolina, Florida, Florida, Kansas, North Carolina, Duke, Connecticut, Kentucky, Louisville, which didn't count anymore because of reasons. UConn, Duke, Villanova. Well, UConn, Duke, Villanova, North Carolina, Villanova. I'm reading this. This this can't be right. UVA? (laughs) That can't be right. That team that the year before did not have one in 2020. As a one seed against a 16? By huh. a one seed. Yep. I wonder if that rebound yep, is ever possible again. Uh, yeah, they won a championship. Nope, never happens again. Uh, they didn't have a tournament in 2020. Baylor, Kansas, UConn. So the Big Ten has not won a championship in basketball in 20, 23 years. Maybe 24 this year. Indiana has the most of all the Big Ten teams with five. All of them, I think, are before but, I was born. Well, yes. So, even if Indiana wins this year, which they may not, it's a possibility they don't, that's not going to save them. It's not going to help them. It's not going to make them better in the eyes of the TV market. And that's a problem. Yeah. I don't know what to make of that. But I know this. This is all leading to something that's going to hurt teams that, quote unquote, people don't care about. People say, quote unquote, don't care about Oregon State and Wazoo. And I can assure you, between the two of those schools that have 20,000 plus students apiece, those 50,000 or so students care a and lot about those two alumni. schools. alumni. <laughs> and all of their alumni care a lot about those two schools. I care about those. I have never stepped foot on campus of either one of them. And I love both of them for different reasons, because of what they are. 
because maybe, you know, Wazoo came close to winning a national championship when I was a kid with Ryan Leaf. And I got to watch Jack, the Rogers brothers play when I was in college, like at Oregon State. But like, these are teams that people are going to backtrack their logic to say nobody cares because we're getting a manufactured narrative that nobody cares from ESPN. Yeah, well, and because they won't pay for drive it. around Indianapolis, you see Purdue and IU stuff. You probably see more Purdue and IU stuff than you see Notre Dame stuff. If you dr- drive through, correct, um, a lot of the small towns in Oregon, um, you see, yeah, like 50, there's a 50, ton of. Uh, we were up for a wedding uh, a number of years ago in McMinnville, which is probably about forty five minutes north of Corvallis. And it seemed like it was a heck of a lot more Oregon State stuff than it is Oregon stuff. Um, it helps that that's very much a agricultural community. That's where a ton of uh, um, wineries are and, and some other agriculture as well. Um, yeah. Logging. Like these are these are all schools with large fan bases because they've been relatively big public universities for decades. Like. To say nobody matters is either to say the only people that matter are people. Yeah, people are just being watched because they're good at football. Or you're not necessarily, or you're just trying to manufacture putting together teams that are traditionally good at football. And then you realize that if you make that a closed league, some of those teams aren't going to be that good relative to the rest of the league anymore. I say this all the time. Someone has to come in last every season. Someone. And and if you close that league off, it's going to hurt the team that comes in last. I'm telling you this. Extracting those teams out is going to hurt. I, I will argue the NCAA is bad. You will not see me defend them. I'm sorry. I know they're in Indianapolis. I'm sorry. They're a flawed institution that happens to have a really nice location. Yes. Right on the canal and right on a running trail. And I run by it if I'm running at my office downtown. Listen, here's the deal. The reality is this. The NCAA is the schools. The rules that they have in place are the rules that they agreed to. The NCAA not changing their rules is not a product of an and an an archaic system. It's the product of the schools not wanting to do it so that they can then say the schools, the NCAA hasn't done it so that they can build this narrative to do the thing they actually want, which is to cut out all the middlemen. That's what they're doing. And that's what it looks like they're doing to me. Maybe it's not, but the NCAA doesn't negotiate TV deals anymore. That's done by conferences who they cut out from that with a lawsuit by people who were a part of the system that they are mad at and that they could change if they wanted to, but they won't because it benefits them to have somebody to be. It's mad why at. the commissioners of all the pro leagues exist so that you're, you are never mad Correct. at your own team for their decisions. You're mad at Roger Goodell. Well, I am mad at Roger Goodell for a variety of reasons, <laughs> but as a San Francisco 49er fan, a lifelong <laughs> fan, I am also mad at Jed York who got in trouble and is no longer. <laughs> I, like, I realize I'm saying this is also like Dull. a fan of a team that was owned by Dan Snyder for many, many years. <laughs> so 
Yeah. We were all mad at Dan Snyder. <laughs> so, we were also mad at the owners. God. But like, a- mad at it. An owner for like, oh, they're incompetent at running it, not for, oh, this is what the structure is. Like, right. <laughs> Listen, you also live in a town where you were mad at Jim Ursay because he was in the news. So, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Him, Haslam, Jerry Jones. It's there's a bunch of them that we like, we should not know the names of, and we do. And we're all mad Jim at the Ursay ones. Jim Ursay is a weird, weird man. So, sometimes in. And he's sometimes in, of in like really schools. good ways, an interesting way, and then sometimes, sometimes. in the getting yeah. investigated by the feds ways. Congrats, Colts! I wish you all the best. Uh Jeff, we had another good one this week. Anything you want to leave the people with before we get out of here? I'll say, um, hope everyone, if they're traveling. Um, at the holidays, this will, I think, probably come out either on the 23rd or the 24th. So that's prime traveling to to family or if you're not necessarily traveling to family, potentially traveling um, somewhere just to enjoy some time off work. Um, as I hope you travel safe. Um, if you're not able to be with family or have to work, um, still hope, hope you have a um, safe holiday. And I'll say if you, you know, I think we've got potentially a couple listeners that work in healthcare, and this is unfortunately one of their busier times of year. I know in retail, it can also be in hope you're hope you're able to find some some pieces of calm and through uh, this very busy time. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'll say for Jeff Boiler Up in Indiana word um for me it's winter is here winter has finally arrived in the northern hemisphere and the shorter shorter days longer nights and colder temperatures have arrived um one of the things i like to tell people is we we celebrate this time because this is a celebration of the fact that we're going to get through another winter and that's true we're going to get through another off season it's okay we can wax poetic about whether or not florida state is right or wrong but it's okay It'll work itself out. And in August, when the summer is drawing to a close, we're going to kick football. <laughs> toe, as Joe likes, Jeff likes to say, toe will meet leather. And we will play football. A game that I love, a game that I love deeply, a game that I find fascinating as a way to talk about the Republic. I wish, like the Republic, it was more democratic. Both at the team level, uh, at the conference level, and at the national level. But we're where we are, and you have to force it to be more democratic. And uh, again, like Jeff said, we got to protest about that. We got to take our power back about that. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we'll find it one way or another. But uh, like we always say, don't forget to feed your mascot.